From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, how Hungary's democracy is slipping away. If there's one prevailing geopolitical trend that we've seen in the past year, it's the rise of autocratic rulers. On this podcast alone, we've discussed troubling developments in places like Brazil and Turkey. Now add to that list Hungary. Protests erupted there last month. All day Sunday, thousands, from the Greens to the far right, were united in anger, fed up with what they say is their government's creeping authoritarianism. In the thick of the smoke bombs, tear gas and clashes, desperate voices plead for calm. Many who took to the streets were voicing their opposition to a new law backed by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. It allows private companies to compel their employees to work hundreds of overtime hours. It was passed in an effort to make up for a labor shortage gripping the country. But critics likened it to slavery. In democracy, well, I'd like to have a democracy here. I'd like to live in a country where I can freely decide on what I can do, and no decisions are made above my head. Hungary's labor problems have been exacerbated by Orban's harsh anti-immigration stance. A wider concern among Hungarians has been Orban's attacks against democratic institutions, which threaten his power. Chief among those is the media. And that's where our next guest, Anita Kamuvesh, works. Uh, hello, thank you for having me. I'm in Budapest, in the offices of uh, Atlatso, where I work, and uh, this is a non-profit investigative outlet, and I'm sitting in our um, little office. How many people work for Atlatso? Uh, we are 10 altogether, that is uh, seven journalists and three data guys. Atlatso means transparent. As a small news agency, they are trying to shed a light on corruption in Hungary. But as I learned when I spoke to Anita a few weeks ago, that's become an increasingly difficult thing to do. Let's start with the election of Viktor Orban in 2010. What was his relationship like to the press when he was first in office? That was actually the second time. He was first elected in 1998. And uh, we knew that in 2010, when he came to power again, um, one of his main goals was to build up a right-wing media empire. That was a very clear goal that he was uh, fed up with the so-called left-wing media dominance. And one of the first things he started to do in 2010 was uh, attack the independent media and start building a right-wing media. First, he started with passing a new media law And uh, there was a huge international outcry because that was a very, let's say, scary media law that would have made him able to curtail press freedom. And because of the outcry, they decided not to use it. It was too risky for them in a European context. So they came up with this very, let's say, smart idea of controlling the media through economic methods. The main uh, tool for this is advertising. So the biggest advertiser in this country is the state. And uh, also market-based independent companies are are not willing to advertise in independent outlets because they are afraid of uh, angering the government. So this means that independent outlets practically get zero advertising money, while pro-government outlets are, you know... They, they have so much money that they don't even know how to spend it, really. 
when you say the government is the primary advertiser, you mean they actually buy the ads and they promote what? How does it work? Uh, yes, uh, that's a very interesting feature that actually you can see like corruption itself on TV or in magazines. So first of all, there are the so-called information campaigns. They are called government information and they... The first such big information campaign was in 2015 against migration. So there were billboards all across the country and uh, advertising on TV, radio, newspapers against migration, saying things like uh, migrants have to adapt to our culture and migrants want to take your job. And it serves two purposes. First of all, it is propaganda. It gives a message. Second, it allows them to channel money to friendly media outlets because this advertising costs a lot of money. Another way of this is uh, advertisement by state-owned companies. So, for example, uh, in Hungary, electricity is a monopoly. We have one electricity company that serves the entire country. And this has been so for decades. And they are advertising this electricity company. And it is quite obvious to see that you don't really have to advertise something that has been providing electricity to every single citizen for decades. Uh, but they still do that because it allows them to channel the money to their friendly media owners. Tell me a little bit about Neb Sibadzeg. That Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on it. You worked for Nebzabadzeg for 11 years, I think, until it was shut down in 2016. And it had antagonized Orban. Tell me how. Nebzabadzeg um, was the Communist Party newspaper, but it was privatized in 1990. And after that, it had private owners and the whole newspaper and the editorial line was obviously changed, uh, but the name remained. So... It was transformed into a, a real independent newspaper in 1990. And then it became the most popular newspaper of the country. And um, it did antagonize Orban by covering corruption aggressively. And I think that was the most important reason why they wanted to shut it down. So when the newspaper was shut down in 2016, October 8th, one Hungarian NGO, an anti-corruption NGO called K-Monitor, they said that Nép Szabadság published by far the most stories about corruption, roughly one per day. They also checked what kind of governments these stories were about, and uh, they figured out that half of them were about the left-wing government's corruption, and the other half was about the right-wing government's corruption. So they didn't even find any bias. And I am personally convinced that that was what angered Orban because uh, his regime is extremely corrupt and uh, he doesn't like that to be exposed. But it wasn't his hand directly that had a role in shutting it down. It was sold in 2014. Tell me about that. Yes, it was sold to an Austrian businessman called Heinrich Petzina. Uh, along with a lot of other newspapers. It was a big media portfolio. And uh, we didn't really understand why an Austrian businessman would buy a Hungarian media portfolio. It didn't make sense. So we had a hunch that uh, he was only a frontman for a Hungarian businessman. And we were very scared that it would be a pro-government businessman. 
and uh, we started to hear rumors about who they want as the new editor-in-chief who was actually uh, a journalist who has for decades been loyal to Orban and we were expecting uh, a similar fate to a lot of other newspapers and online magazines in Hungary that is having a new editor-in-chief and then all the news journalists uh, leaving and uh, then the whole newspaper being turned into propaganda. Before you go into what actually happened, what was your role at the time? What were you covering? Where were you? What was happening for you? Mm -hmm. I was uh, at the foreign desk covering uh, U.S. politics, and I was also part of the investigative team just a year before the paper was shut down, sometimes in 2015. And then what ends up happening? So there was a little bit of a trick there because in September, just a month before it was closed down, our sources from the government told us that Mr. Orban or whoever made this decision uh, decided that we would be able to continue working for two more years because they don't want any scandal near the elections. So we calmed down a little bit and got down to working and we published lots of important scoops. The owners also said that we would be moving offices. So the date for the move was set to be October 9. So Friday night we packed up everything into little boxes and put numbers on it so that we would find them on our desks in the new office. And the editor-in-chief said goodbye Friday night and said, uh, everybody please come early on Sunday. We have to get used to the new office, but I will get you pizza and uh, we will have a party. And uh, we left late at night. And I even remember snapping a photo on my phone and posting it on Instagram saying, goodbye old office, welcome new office, something like that. And um, next morning I woke up to a news flash on my phone from a, from a news website saying that my newspaper was shut down. And the pretext for shutting it down was that it was unprofitable which might or might not be true, but it was the most popular newspaper that sold the most copies in the country. And then we we had a crisis meeting. We tried to convince the owners to strike a deal, allow us to work, and then maybe take some salary cuts or, you know, just try to find a compromise. But it turned out that they really didn't want to find a solution. And this was just a pretext. So they just wanted the paper to be gone. Then that night, some people, regular people, we don't even know who, they organized a protest in front of the parliament. So, you know, less than 24 hours after we finished work on the last issue of the paper, we were in the middle of thousands of people protesting for us. And that was a very surreal experience. The New York Times, at the time when Nebzabacek was shut down, reported that the week of the shutdown, there had been a number of stories of of corruption, you know, that there was a, a head um, of Orban's cabinet office had flown by helicopter to a wedding, that there were you know, sort of lavish expenses being used, and, and that that itself might have tweaked the government into at least annoyance, um, if not frustration of some kind. 
Yes, you are right. We have the suspicion that it uh, speeded things up. So they would have shut it down anyway. They um, decided to do it uh, much faster and in a much uglier way because it angered them. After that, we started to go to businessmen, media owners, um, investors, trying to get some money for a new media outlet, possibly an online magazine. We were writing uh, business plans. In a week, we had a business plan ready for a new website. And we practically went everywhere. I personally went to Washington, D.C. because I had connections there and talked to a few people there. Some of my colleagues went to Berlin. Others went to Brussels. We went to every single person in Hungary who has money, I think. And uh, nobody gave us any money. It was very obvious that they were so afraid of Orban that they realized that they it would be the stupidest thing to invest in a media outlet that goes against Orban and is founded by the team that was kicked out by him. So after three months, we all realized that we just have to start looking for jobs because we are not going to be able to start something on our own. And I can say our team was still lucky because at the time there were still more jobs in the media and we all found jobs in a few months, practically. First, I was working for a weekly news magazine as a foreign editor, but uh, I've been planning to go to investigative journalism for years at the time. And then Atlatso was uh, advertising a position. They needed somebody with data skills and they took me. So I have to say I'm, I'm very lucky. I can do uh, my, a, a job that I feel is very important and uh, I can work independently without any advertiser or ownership pressure because we are small and that uh, guarantees our independence. And at that, so it's something like ProPublica. Yes, exactly. I think it's much smaller but it's the same idea. More than half of our funding comes from readers in the form of micro donations, and we are very proud of that. Your website, it it has a number for how many media outlets that Orban and his relations control compared to 2015. How many does he control currently, or how many does he have a hand in? Uh, about 500 which is an amazing number for such a small country. And these 500 media outlets, most of them were owned and controlled by uh, businessmen. They were all pro-government businessmen. We can call them oligarchs, actually. But they had this mask of independence. But in November, 476 of these 500 outlets were consolidated into a a non-profit foundation called Central European Press and Media Foundation. What tells you a lot about this is that uh, this media foundation did not pay for any of these media outlets. The owners, the oligarchs, freely offered them and they just uh, donated them. So that really tells you that they weren't the real owners of these outlets even before Because if you are a businessman building up a media empire 
and spending a lot of money on it, you will never ever donate it freely to a state-run foundation. Hungary is one of many countries around the world where illiberal democracy is on the rise, liberal democracy is receding. Do you see parallels between your country's experience and others? Yes. Um, illiberalism, that's interesting because uh, ever since Farid Zakaria used that in his essay, Orban was the first who proudly declared to be illiberal. So I think that's a very strange word to, to use here. Uh, I would rather say populism, and we can definitely see the spread of populism right now from the United States to Poland, uh, Italy, uh, populist parties in other countries where probably they are not in power yet. And um, we have Steve Bannon here in Europe right now organizing all the populists and trying to help them and uh, provide them with help before the European elections. So this is definitely a trend here, and um, it affects uh, my profession. Independent journalists are called fake news media by these populists, and uh, our credibility is undermined. And uh, honestly, my problem is that I don't know where this is leading at the moment, and um, the direction is varying. What do you mean? Where do you think the bottom is? Um, for example, in the in the case of Hungary, I don't know where this is leading. All I can say is that uh, the state capture is uh, more and more complete. Right now, the target of Orban is the judiciary. Courts are the last bastion of freedom, really, in Hungary, because judges are are independent, and um, the vast majority of them make decisions based on their conscience and professional knowledge. And uh, obviously, Viktor Orban doesn't like anybody who is independent. So he's taking over every remaining part of independent media, judiciary, NGOs. And uh, the bigger his control, the harder it is to get out of it. So the more steps he's taking towards controlling the entire state and the country and everything, the harder it feels to be able to push back against this. And that's what is worrying. Do you feel afraid as an investigative journalist in Hungary? I'm not afraid for my physical safety, because for Orban's legitimacy, especially in the European Union, he knows that he cannot attack us physically or threaten us with jail, even though one journalist was threatened with jail recently. Uh, I feel constrained because I feel that it's very hard to do my job properly without uh, being able to, to reach out to government sources because they themselves are afraid, so they will not talk. Um, I'm concerned about being delegitimized I do my job as best as I can according to the ethics of my profession and uh, we are called fake news media and our credibility is undermined by 500 propaganda outlets uh, at the same time and that is concerning and uh, I'm concerned for my colleagues because lots and lots of independent outlets were shut down in the past few years. And I see very, very good journalist colleagues losing their jobs and leaving the profession. And I feel it's a 
vicious cycle because uh, they won't be able to do their jobs. They won't be able to uncover the stories that need to be uncovered. And um, there are fewer and fewer media outlets that can survive in this uh, climate. So journalists are leaving their jobs or they've lost their jobs and they don't have anything to take. Yes. So they they lose their jobs and then they it's very hard to find another because it's a very small media market and it's getting smaller and smaller, especially the independent part of it. So after a while, there will be no jobs for all the journalists because there are no outlets. And then the news is controlled entirely by the propaganda side yes and it will be controlled entirely by Orban after a while and you know we can already feel that there aren't enough journalists in the country there are stories that we know that somebody should pursue but there is just like not enough manpower to do so I myself have a very long list in my notebook about possible stories I have to do and possible leads I need to track down but I think I already have enough for the next year. And new leads come up every day. And um, this is something me and my colleagues discuss a lot, that we are not enough. We can't write fast enough. We cannot work fast enough because just stories just keep coming up and there are not enough journalists to, to cover everything. Orban is popular in Hungary. Can you explain why he feels the need or you believe he feels the need to control the press? He is popular, but he is not immensely popular. His popularity can fall very quickly when something happens. So, for example, in 2014, after he was re-elected and before the migration crisis, he was hit by a, a very bad corruption scandal and his popularity was falling. And... Um, he could only get his popularity back by starting to press the migration issue very hard and by using his propaganda machine to practically scare an entire country. The propaganda media has been pushing anti-migration messages 24-7, and I'm not exaggerating. It's nothing else but migrants are coming, raping your wife, and stealing your job and destroying your culture. And it's a very, very consistent 24-7 message which scared an entire country. Before the elections this year, as a journalist, I spoke to a lot of voters, Fidesz voters, who said they don't like Orban, they think he's corrupt, he's a dictator, but he's the only one who can protect them from migration, and they are very scared of migration. And when you say Fidesz voters, you mean Fidesz is his party, is it not? Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, Fidesz is, uh, is Orban's party. Fidesz is the governing party of Hungary. He also rails against George Soros a great deal. And Soros is, of course, originally from Hungary. Orban accuses him of conspiring against him. But how did Soros become this figure in Hungarian popular consciousness? That's a very interesting question. And uh, just like the anti-migration propaganda, we got the anti-Soros propaganda. And it was very, very interesting because first, Orban and his propagandists didn't connect Soros to migration at all which is very funny to think now. 
But first they said, here is this person, George Soros, who is funding bad, bad NGOs in this country who are working against the Orban government. So that's why we don't like George Soros. And nobody really cared. It really didn't work. And then they realized that they are already having the anti-migration message out. So they decided to connect Soros to migration instead of NGOs. So after six months, there was George Soros who wants migrants in this country. And now then it was kind of effective because people were already scared of migration. Uh, the propaganda media had been working on that for a year by then. So they came up with the idea of George Soros wanting to bring migrants here. And uh, the reason, we really don't know. Uh, one of the guesses is that it's a personal disagreement between Soros and Orban. And for some reason, Orban wanted to get back at Soros. And uh, that's the theory behind the attacks on Central European University which was founded by George Soros, and it's an American-accredited school. And uh, Orban started an attack against CEU, which ended with CEU announcing that they were actually leaving the country and moving to Vienna, which is a huge loss for this country. So Orban knew that CEU was really George Soros's legacy and that George Soros regarded CEU as a very important achievement of his life. And um, that also suggests the theory that there is uh, some personal disagreement. But also we see that George Soros is becoming a a figure for right-wing populists all across the world. So, Was the the phrase fake news media, was it used prior to Donald Trump using that phrase? Not in Hungary, yes. Uh, It's uh, interesting to see that Orban and his people really started to use fake news media after Donald Trump became president and made this very popular. And, you know, they don't even say it in Hungarian. They use the English phrase uh, word for word. They say fake news in English. So it is so powerful. Actually, the election of Donald Trump worries me from Hungary's point of view, because um, having Donald Trump in the White House signals to Viktor Orban that he can do anything he wants. And he knows this, and he does this. Viktor Orban was able to kick out out an American school from this country without really being punished for this. There were some statements from the ambassador and the State Department but the good relationship between Washington and Budapest was uh, not uh, hurt by this, actually. There was no statement from the White House. There was no acknowledgement. There was a State Department statement, and, you know, everybody was very, very sorry, but they uh, explained that uh, they were really, really still friendly. And um, a few days after that, the U.S. ambassador, David Kornstein, He gave an interview to a weekly magazine and said that his heart is broken, but he still has his trust in Viktor Orban. And on the night when thousands of protesters were marching on the TV headquarters, protesting against propaganda media, the American ambassador, David Kornstein, was watching a soccer match in the VIP section of a stadium with Viktor Orban 
in a rural town. And I think that shows a lot about the American government's relationship to the Hungarian government. Anita, one last question. On January 1st, you tweeted out, this sounds like the Hungarian government. And it was a piece in the Washington Post about uh, silence from Trump representatives and uh, reporters trying to get information out of the American White House. Why did you think it sounded like Hungary? Because this is what happens to me every single day. I send questions as a reporter to Hungarian ministries, government officials, spokespeople, and they don't answer. They don't even say no comment. They just very simply ignore my question. And uh, in fact, that is illegal. According to Hungarian law, every government agency needs to create a press department And that press department is required to answer every single question by journalists. And they are very simply ignoring me. And then I was reading that story about the White House. I was was really astonished because my experience in the United States was that it was much more transparent and open than my country. And now it's behaving just like the Orban government, simply not answering reporters' questions. Are you hopeful about anything going into 2019? I am hopeful because um, the protests that started right before Christmas showed a new kind of enthusiasm and determination, both from people and opposition politicians. Because uh, one of the main um, problems here was that the opposition was really either afraid or unable to act. And now they realize that they have to try a different kind of politics and that they have to work together and they are doing so and they are also pushing women into the front lines. This is a very, very macho country and a very, very macho government and um, they themselves are astonished by women stepping up against uh, them and that makes me hopeful actually. Anita, thank you so much for joining us today and and telling us a bit about what it's like to work as a journalist in Hungary right now. I hope you stay in touch. Thank you so much. That's Anita Kamuvesh, an investigative journalist at Adlatso. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I'm your host. <laughs> <laughs>